right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. My Whip Smart listeners, today's guest is an actual superhero who's here to make us all smarter. Shannon Watts is a mother of five who started Moms Demand Action. The day after the Sandy Hook shooting, Shannon started a Facebook group with the message that all Americans can and should do more to reduce gun violence. Since then, the movement has grown to nearly 6 million supporters with a chapter in every state. Shannon has made it her mission to help pass stronger gun laws, close the loopholes that jeopardize our safety, and work with communities and business leaders to develop a culture of responsible gun ownership. I was so honored to have Shannon stop by Work in Progress to talk about the work she's doing and her book, Fight Like a Mother, how a grassroots movement took on the gun lobby and why women will change the world. I hope that after listening, no matter where you fall on this political debate, you'll realize that we're all on the same team and you'll be inspired to join in and help in whatever way you can. Here's Shannon Watts. I have to say, just thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for always amplifying our work. It's so important and it is so helpful. It really is. And it means a lot to our volunteers and gun violence survivors. Yeah. I mean, I thank you so much. That's really, it's kind and it's humbling because sometimes you don't, we all, I think, worry that in whatever way or avenue we've chosen to work in or, or work on that maybe we're not doing enough. And so that I really oh, do it appreciate huge, it. Huge difference. And I and I am just so thankful for all you do. I think I straddle a very interesting line, I, perhaps because of my upbringing and also things that have made me curious in my life. My uh, my dad is from Canada and spent every summer on a farm. And when I was twelve, my dad and I 
started shooting 22 rifles together. Like he would take me to the range and it was a thing that he'd done with his, his dad. And, you know, I'm the only child, so I'm the son and the daughter all wrapped into one. Not that you necessarily have to have a sort of gendered hobby, but, you know. So I have all these wonderful memories of that experience. And, and because I enjoyed all of that so much, I became a version of a hobbyist. I have always loved the challenge of a range day. And I then went on to work on, you know, movies and TV shows where I trained. And I've now been through training with multiple SWAT teams in, you know, Illinois and in Los Angeles. And I've really quite enjoyed it. And I still enjoy it. And yet I'm so stricken by what's happening in this country with access to guns and with gun violence. And so often, because I work in entertainment, people will say, well, you're just some, you know, left coast liberal who doesn't know anything about guns. And I'm like, y'all, I challenge you to a range day. You want to see what my pattern looks like? Because I bet it's better than yours. And people are so shocked. And people are shocked when they hear that I was doing a training day with my buddies that are Green Berets three days before Parkland shooting AR-15s at the range. Mm -hmm. But I think having those kinds of relationships with law enforcement, military, healthy respect for that space, I also understand that, that those are weapons that we're not supposed to take them home. I don't need one of those in my house. And, you know, no offense to anyone who's a hunter out there, but like if you need an AR to hit a deer, you're real bad at your hobby. <laughs> you know, I think there's this missing kind of rationale where we can sit down and have conversations across these, quote, sides. There shouldn't be sides when it comes to kids and families and, and mothers and siblings. It, it feels like it's reached this point of insanity. And you and Moms Demand, you come in as this real, beautiful, ferocious, passionate voice of reason. And you are so respectful to people, but you also take no shit. And I love it. I'm like, let her go. And I just, I would love for you, for any listeners out there who maybe don't know your story, can you kind of walk us through this and, and how you came to be the advocate that you are and, and, and where you sort of sit in all of this? Yeah. And you raise a really important point that there are 400 million guns in this country Many of our volunteers are gun owners, or they're married to gun owners. We even have a group of volunteers in the Midwest who call themselves camo moms. They hunt together. This is not about undoing the Second Amendment. This is not about taking away anyone's guns. This is about restoring the responsibilities that go along with gun rights. Mm -hmm. You mean that whole thing from 2A, which is a well-regulated? Yeah, that's the part they always forget. Militia, as a, yeah. They just remember the mm -hmm. shall not be infringed part. Mm -hmm. I actually grew up with grandparents who were World War II veterans who both hunted, both my grandfathers hunted, and my dad owned rifles. I grew up in upstate New York, a pretty conservative area. And I watched, like so many Americans, mass shooting after mass shooting in this country, especially as I became an adult. You know, I lived in Texas in the 90s when the Luby's massacre happened. So many people were shot and killed in a, a restaurant there in Texas. And then Columbine and Virginia Tech and the Gabby Gifford shooting and on and on. And so for me, when the Sandy Hook school tragedy happened, I was a stay-at-home mom in Indiana. And 
pundits were on my television just hours later saying the solution was more guns. And I knew that wasn't right. I didn't know anything about gun policy. I was not politically active. I'd never been involved in organizing, but I knew that the yin to the gun, gun lobby's yang was American moms. 80 million of us, hmm. whether they're Republicans or Democrats, none of us want to lose our children to gun violence. So I thought, okay, I want to join something like Mom, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but for gun safety. And I went online. I couldn't find anything. All I could find were mail-run think tanks in D.C. or one-off state organizations. I wanted to be part of a badass army of women across the country. So I started a Facebook page. I was not a social media phenom. I had about 75 Facebook friends. I did not have an active Twitter handle. But because women are so amazing, these type A women started following this page and they started Googling me and getting my personal information and calling me and emailing me and saying, I'm ready to get off the sidelines. I want to do this where I live. Mm -hmm. Not really knowing what this was at the time. Mm -hmm. And what I thought would be an online conversation became the largest grassroots movement in the country. And you guys are passing bills nationwide. I mean, you are making sweeping change. And what might be most impressive to me is helping to educate people about what responsible gun laws mean. Because we have to take this sort of extreme hysteria out of the conversation and and this idea that people who do have, as your family did and my family did and so many families do, these cultural relationships to hunting and outdoorsmanship, we have to figure out a way for that to be properly regulated. You know, one of the things that I so often talk to people about is why, if you can't buy a plane ticket, can you buy a gun? And people will say, well, that's not possible, but it is. And then we'll talk about background checks and people will say, well, there are background checks, but not nationwide. There's no nationwide database to make sure that people who shouldn't have guns don't get access to them. You know, when we talk about um, even self-defense, I understand the argument, but I also am very aware as a woman who knows what women go through in the world, that a woman is five times more likely to die in a domestic situation if there's a gun in the house. That's right. There, There is an ease of escalation when a gun is present in a dangerous situation that we just shouldn't have access to. And so if a spouse is abusive, their guns should be taken away so that the spouse whom they abuse is protected from that escalating rage. And we don't have a system of that either. And I think that those truths are shocking to people. And I guess I'm curious uh, for people who want to get involved but aren't as far along in the process as you are, where would you encourage them to start? Just to go back to some of the points you made, which I think are so important, you know, every nation is home to misogynists, to domestic abusers, to racists, to homophobes, to bigots. Only America gives them easy access to an arsenal and ammunition. It's why we have a 25 times higher gun homicide rate than any other country. Not 25%, 25 times. 25 times a higher. multiple of 25. Right. Than any other peer nation, women in this country are 20 times more likely to be shot and killed than women in peer countries. This is a crisis. And when we look at states that have stronger gun laws, we see that fewer dangerous people get guns and there are fewer gun deaths. We have the data and the research to back that up. And, and everything we do 
is based on research and data. Which laws will save the most lives? It's why we have worked in 28 states to keep guns out of the hands of domestic abusers and pass laws there to do that. It's why we've closed the background check loophole now in 21 states. And also something called the red flag law, which has received a lot of bipartisan support, especially since the tragedy in Parkland, Florida. A red flag law essentially allows police or family to petition a judge to remove the guns from someone who seems to be a danger to themselves or others, which Mm. can prevent both gun suicides and gun homicides. Mm. So we've passed that now. It'll be 15 states and it's on the desk of two different governors. All of this work, all of these laws are life-saving and they seem like common sense. But because we're fighting this intractable gun lobby, it does take several election cycles to get some of this work done. In terms of the polarization of the issue, it's important to remember that 90% of Americans support us and stronger gun laws, 80% of gun owners, only one in 10 of whom belong to the NRA, and 74% of NRA members. This isn't about Americans disagreeing with one another. This is about the vast majority of Americans versus the gun lobby leadership and some of the lawmakers who are beholden to them. Because they have built this very loud minority, a very vocal minority, it can feel like it's a polarizing issue. Mm. And it can keep people from getting involved. I'm happy to serve as the tip of the spear on this issue because there are death threats and threats of sexual violence that come along with this kind of activism. But people can get involved in their communities where they live. You can do work in your state houses, in your city councils. You can talk to business owners where you live and see what their gun policies are, make them part of your coalition. We have very much prioritized creating partnerships with community groups wherever we go to make sure that when we are going to state houses to oppose bad bills or support good bills, we're doing it with educators, police officers, business leaders. All of it matters and they all need to be present. So Getting involved can be as small as taking action when your kids are taking a nap, which we call naptivism, or it can be as big as joining us and taking on a leadership position where you live as a volunteer. But because we're type A moms, we will make the best use of your time. I love that. It's efficient. We are so efficient. And I think it's a beautiful thing to encourage people to do what they can. Because a lot of people feel like they can't make a difference. You know, I don't have the time or or I'm not sure where to start. And you saying that if there is a mom, a parent, a person out there who just has the window of a nap, maybe 20 free minutes, 10 free minutes in a day, they can make a difference in their community. I think that's really important for people to know. And just to give you an example, so we have gone after companies that allow something called open carry inside their stores. This is legal in 45 states where you can take a semi-automatic rifle or a gun loosely in your pocket or your purse into restaurants and retailers if they allow it. And it started for us with Starbucks, but there were other companies as well that were allowing this. And it only took us three days to get Chipotle to stop allowing open carry in their stores using the hashtag burritos, not bullets. That was all online. So there are different ways to get involved. And it can be as easy as sending an email or using a hashtag or making a phone call. But you may also want to move on to meeting with your lawmakers or, in a perfect world, thinking about running for office yourself. That's so exciting. So obviously, we're having this conversation. You're this enormous national movement, and you have this incredible army of moms and parents and volunteers working with you. How did 
how did it start to pick up steam? Because you say that you, you know, you started with 75 Facebook friends. <laughs> how did, how did you build this? What, what were the big milestones that you saw as sort of your steps to organizing? First, it was really all public and private Facebook pages. And that's how we would get to know one another across the country. And what year did this all start? It started the day after the Sandy Hook school shooting, which was in the very end of 2012. And so a lot of the work we were doing around organizing happened in 2013. And we were just doing that work, sort of beginning to get Facebook pages up off the ground and getting people involved where they lived in their states. And then suddenly we got a call from the White House. And they said, we have been waiting for women and mothers to organize across the country on this. Will you help us support the Manchin-Toomey bill? And that was a bill that was put forward in the aftermath of Sandy Hook that would have required a background check on every gun sale. Right now, you only have to have a background check if it's a licensed sale, not an unlicensed sale, for example, at a gun show or online. And we just started organizing around that bill. We were showing up in Washington, D.C. We were meeting with our senators in district where we lived. We were doing all these sort of mom things like craft projects to get the attention of our lawmakers and, and to get other Americans off the sidelines. And we worked really hard for several months. And then in April of 2013, that bill failed by just a handful of votes, some of them Democratic senators. For example, Heidi Heitkamp, a North Dakota Democratic senator who said she voted no because she had heard more from the other side. Even though she was a mom, a woman, a Democrat, she voted no. And we really vowed then and there that that would be the last time a lawmaker could say that, that we would build such a loud majority, we would no longer be a silent majority, that no lawmaker could ever use that as an excuse again. And we also realized then that this work ends in Congress. It's not where it begins. And our volunteers intuitively pivoted and started doing this work in their state houses and in boardrooms where they lived. And along the way, we realized this isn't just about mass shootings or school shootings. This is the daily gun violence, the gun homicides in city centers, the gun suicides in rural communities, the mm -hmm. unintentional shootings all over the country. And we have to care Family about fire, all, all of it. it. Yes, we have to address all of it. And we just began growing exponentially. And then, in fact, after the tragedy in Parkland, Florida, we tripled in size. But because we'd built this machinery on the ground, we could absorb all of these new volunteers. You were ready for it. You had the infrastructure. Okay, listeners, I'm going to talk to you about our sponsors. But first, I want to clarify for all the people. When you started all of this, what was the reaction from your friends and your family? Because as you say, you you are a, you know, to use a common phrase, a poster child for this movement. And so that puts a lot of eyeballs on you. And that comes with a lot of terrible backlash and, and sort of side effects, which I imagine are, are only made manageable because of all the good you're doing. But how how did your community and your family react how have they supported you? How, how have you done this? Well, I think I was naive. And that helped in a way because I didn't know the blowback I would get. I honestly didn't. I just didn't realize this underbelly of America existed, where I would immediately be getting death threats, threats of sexual violence to me, to my daughters, people getting my phone number, texting me, calling me, direct messaging me, driving by my house, sending me letters at my home. And 
couple of months in, I called the police just to say, like, could you keep an eye on the house? And his response was, well, that's what happens when you mess with the Second Amendment, ma'am. And I realized then that I either needed to accept that this was going to be part of it or make a decision that I wasn't going to do it. And it has become white noise to me. I'm just not going to be silenced or intimidated. Mm-hmm. The NRA even ramped up their attacks on me. Um, it's recently. despicable what they They've do started tagging me in posts and, mm-hmm. and purposely sending trolls after me to mm-hmm. send horrific threats. Mm-hmm. But again, what's the alternative? That we do nothing? That we allow 100 Americans to die from gun violence every day? I mean, this is not sustainable. This issue is not going away. And I also think the NRA is trying to distract because they are under such investigation right now for their ties to Russia, for misspending members' dollars. Mm -hmm. So they have to try to distract. Yeah. Well, paying their CEO $5 million a year and paying for luxury yachts and cars and private planes. Don't forget the Italian suits. I mean, it's an utterly insane thing to do. And- when I see what they do to you online, I worry for you because I know that not only are they fomenting a their own base that has been made hysterical because of the lies the NRA is pushing, but I also know that they're sending those Russian troll farms after you that are just insufferable. Yeah. You know, I in my own space, I get caught up in that sometimes when I'm going after the insane policies of the Trump administration and if the wrong group picks up on just the factual truth that I'm spelling out on Twitter, the the bot attacks will mm-hmm. start. And while I guess I only share that to say that I have such deep sympathy for you because I know logically, like in my brain, I know that's a bot, that's not real. But to be on the receiving end of rape and death and maiming and torture threats is horrific for your psyche. And I don't think that people know that that's the price that's paid. And for you, I know that it is exponentially worse because you have an entire organization mobilizing against your movement. And it makes me curious, this relationship between the NRA and women, their messaging often implies that women should not be believed or that, you know, you are uh, making a big deal out of something that isn't a problem or or that you're saying we need to solve something unsolvable, which I find to be ridiculous because every other country's figured out how to solve it. So it's clearly solvable. Yes. Data doesn't lie. Right. But then on the flip side, they'll say you're disarming women. You're making things unsafe for women, conveniently ignoring that stat about a woman being five times more likely to die in a situation where a gun is present. So – how, how, as a woman, how are you making sense of all of that? The NRA has such a marketing dilemma because on one hand, they sell guns by using misogyny. And we've seen them employ this again and again. I mean, for God's sake, Ted Nugent's on their board. The things he said about women and, and politicians who are women in particular are disgusting. Despicable, really. Even after the UCSB shooting in California, one of their spokespeople got on TV, their you know NRA TV channel, and was comparing a woman's body to an AR-15. And they've gone after me personally saying, I'm not a real stay-at-home mom. I'm a, they called me a Bloomberg whore because Mike Bloomberg was one of our early supporters and donors. And on the other hand, they have to sell guns to women or in order to, to protect the profit margins of gun manufacturers, right? 
the NRA, the gun lobby, gun manufacturers are selling more guns to fewer people. They've convinced basically a white man over the age of 60 that they need an arsenal. That is not sustainable. They have to broaden their their base of people who will buy guns. And how do they do that? They tell you you need yoga pants that include a gun holster. They tell like who needs to take a gun to a yoga class. The, the <laughs> just to, would just like, to be well, rational for one minute, you know. It's, but sadly, there was a shooting, right? You know, at, at the yoga studio. So, but that again has to do with misogyny, right? And we need to disarm misogynists. But the NRA wants us to believe we actually all need to be armed when we go anywhere, except for the fact that we see these horrific things happen. You know, you saw that that incredible man, the bodyguard in Chicago, who stopped a shooting and then was killed by the police because they saw a man with a gun and the crowd was screaming, he's the bodyguard, he's a good guy, and they shot him anyway. And so this idea that by somehow just arming everyone will survive, all that happens is more more people holding guns lead to more people getting shot. Right. It's why road rage with guns has more than doubled in the last five years. There are all these different crises that have been started by this idea of guns for anyone, anytime, anywhere, no questions asked. That's that's the gun lobby's agenda. But I don't believe women are buying what the NRA is selling. In fact, the percentage of women who are buying guns or becoming gun owners really has remained unchanged. It's about 12% and it's stayed there for a long time. But that that spells trouble for the NRA. And I guess what bothers me about it is that when you say it spells trouble for them, it spells trouble for their profit margin. And they're putting profits over people. And that's just something that I can't understand. And when when people, when we talk about 100 gun deaths a day, a lot of people want to say, yeah, but that includes suicide. And I'm very aware. But there are people who will take their life by gun who won't take their life in another way, who feel too scared. So, Or, or they try a method that isn't as deadly. Yes. Certainly. And I understand that some people aren't going to be stopped. And that's devastating. And yes, we need to address mental health and support systems for people. But I always ask when someone points that out, I say, what if you could stop five of those deaths a day if those people couldn't get a gun? Wouldn't that be meaningful? Wouldn't that be worth something? And I think for me, it's been really hard that Sandy Hook didn't change this, you know, that people could try to capitalize on that, that someone like an Alex Jones could start a movement, which then in court he admitted he knew was a lie, but he did it for ratings, and that those families would be traumatized over and over again because of the, the this rabid obsession that he unleashed on them. I wonder how we've gotten so lost that we aren't registering the horror that is happening to people. Because I remember being in school. I remember being in Mr. Hallman's biology class when we heard about Columbine. And one of my best friends from my childhood had moved to Colorado. And, you know, there was no social media. There was no nothing back then. So I didn't know what her school was called. And until 8 o'clock that night, I didn't know if my friend had died. And I remember my school shutting down. I mean, they just stopped. They brought everybody into the auditorium. They had teachers coming to speak to us, asking us if we needed anything. Did we want to go home? They would call our parents. It was a game over moment. And now these shootings happen 
And the news has moved on and it moves on in less than 12 hours. People, people say, well, wait, what? There was a shooting last week. Where was it? And I just don't know how we're not addressing gun violence as a public health crisis because it is. This is an epidemic. And again, I say this as a sharpshooter. I say this as a gun owner. I say this as a person who goes to the range on a Sunday afternoon. On no planet do I feel like I need to have an arsenal of weapons in my home. Like, this isn't The Walking Dead, you know? It just just isn't. And I, I am hopeful that organizations like yours will help to bring some of that reality back into the conversation. Yeah, you know, this is really about greed. And it's no different than any other special interest we've seen in this right. country. Well, it's no different than like pharmaceutical industries Alcohol, pushing drugs that are bad for people. Drunk driving back in the 80s. A lot of the same argu- arguments were used. Right. Tobacco industry. Tobacco, yeah. But the NRA, you know, in 1999, they said two things. We don't believe there should be guns in any schools, and we support a background check on every gun sale. And the then NRA what, said that? They did. Wayne LaPierre said that in 1999. Wow. But then what happened was the demographic shift of selling more guns but to fewer people. And they're a lobbying organization. So, of course, they have to protect their special interests. And that is really what this is about at the end of the day. It is about a lobbying organization that has been able to take over some state legislatures, some of our Mm -hmm. members of Congress, Mm -hmm. and really have their way with our laws. A bully pulpit, really. Yeah. And, And America has changed that in the past. They've taken on special interests and they've won. And this is no different. You know, after the Virginia Beach shooting, I was so dismayed because there were so many politicians and pundits saying, this is never going to change. Americans don't have the will to take this on. Or even speculating about causes of gun violence that are absolutely not germane or or research-supported, like video games or polarization. Every other country in the world has video Ex- games. And, and movies and all of it. Yeah. What America has is easy access to guns. But it is so important to remember that we are winning. You know, last year we passed stronger gun laws in 20 states. Nine were signed by Republican governors. In the midterm elections, we outspent and outmaneuvered the NRA. And That's incredible. we go into 2020 and their hands are tied behind their back. They are in disarray. They're broke. And we are stronger than we've ever been as a movement. And I'm, I'm incredibly hopeful that this will only take a few election cycles. I'm so amazed by you. Can you t- walk me through something? Because you, in the book, you write about the main gun violence myths. And I'm hoping that we can just go through sure. some and you can. You probably know them, them as well I, as I do as a gun owner. I think that they're so helpful. One of the things that drives me crazy about this and that I got to see firsthand working with the Chicago police on a job there for four years is everyone always uses Chicago and the gang violence and the and the gun deaths there as the example. They're like, well, Illinois has some of the strictest laws. It's because all the guns in Chicago come from Indiana. The majority of crime guns in Chicago come from Indiana, which is just a bicycle right away. And they have some of the most lax gun laws in the country. So they're bought there, they're traded there, and then they're just driven into Chicago. That's exactly right. And this is why it's so important to talk about passing laws and background yes. checks and And why we need federal laws, on too. On a federal level, yes. I just... It makes me nuts. Everyone, everyone who's on the other side always wants to yell at me about Chicago. They're like, you should know. Me I'm too. like, I, but I actually lived there and I do know. It's the Groundhog's Day of questions. I lived in Indiana. So, yes. yeah. You and me, sister. Yes. Yes. There is a myth. More guns mean less crime. 
Data absolutely does not prove that, at least credible data. Um, there's a, a researcher that the NRA often refers to who is completely non-credible in the research community. When you look at the data, what it shows us is that stronger gun laws reduce gun deaths, full stop. It is so important that we make our country's laws and our policies based on data and not anecdotes, and certainly not gun lobby data. Yeah, that would be like making health laws based on data funded by Pepsi or Coca-Cola. Exactly. Like, no, nobody's doing that because we know it's a joke. So there is the myth, and I know we've touched on it, but just to clarify, there's a myth out there that Moms Demand Action wants to take your guns away. That is not true. Absolutely not. You know, it's so important to remember in this country that we do have a Second Amendment and that there are 400 million guns in civilian hands. This is not about the right of self-defense, which people have. This is about restoring the responsibilities that go along with those rights, and they have been eroded by the gun lobby for decades. There's a myth that criminals will always find their way to get their hands on a gun. Yeah, I, I love when lawmakers say laws don't work. These are the, the same. I'm like, then why are you trying to pass them for everything else? Exactly. Including, including about women's bodies. Right. Like laws don't work. Okay. <laughs> the same lawmakers who are saying that laws will stop abortion say that gun laws will not stop gun violence. It's completely counterintuitive and it is certainly not backed up by data. So there's a myth that says you already have to get a background check. So what more could you need? A lot of people really do believe you have to have a background check on every gun sale. If you buy from an unlicensed dealer in now, what? 29 states, you do not have to go through a background check. Or at a gun show. So if you're at a gun show, you can buy a gun online. It is a very large commerce, a very regular way that people access guns in this country. And all you have to do is meet that person in person. And if it's in a state that does not require a background check, you simply sell it to the person, no questions asked. And when they made the the laws in 1990s about requiring background checks, no one imagined there would be this huge online marketplace to sell guns. So for example, armslist.com. I mean, it's just become one of the, the largest gun marketplaces in the country. I actually got to ask President Clinton about that recently. And I said, you know, the Brady Bill and all these incredible laws that you passed and the time that you took to go into these communities like your own in, you know, rural Arkansas and speak to hunters and speak to parents who, you know, had these traditions with their kids, you made it very clear that you weren't coming for people's livelihood or hobbies, but you were making sure to prevent irrational ownership and senseless death, you know, banning assault rifles and, and stopping these extended magazines and all of this insanity. And he said, yeah, but I'm devastated that we didn't know what the internet was going to be. Exactly. Because the argument for allowing that that small loophole was more about like, well, what if I want to buy a rifle from my neighbor? You know, we know each other and, and where are we going to get a background check? And that made sense in the early 90s. And then everything changed. And that's what fascinates me when people are unwilling to have this conversation is they're not taking into account the advances in technology and the change in culture that has so clearly happened since that amendment was written. You know, the amendment was written when we're talking about a, a single load musket that takes two minutes to reload a pellet bullet. It's it's just such a different animal now. And it seems to me that we have to be sensible about evolving with the times and the technology. And we do on pretty much every other issue in this country. Mm -hmm. But because we have a gun lobby, right. they haven't applied it to guns yet. 
And what nobody seems to be talking about is that these lobbies are basically like these PR beasts. They create these sort of mythical public relations campaigns to convince people of things that aren't based in fact. Well, for example, you know, the NRA has been trying to deregulate silencers. And how do they do that? By trying to pass something called the Hearing Protection Act. It has nothing to do with hearing. It has to do with being a cash cow, an accessories cash cow for the gun manufacturers. That terrifies me. So there is a myth that arming teachers will make kids safer. And I really want to talk to you about the data on that. Data shows that arming teachers does not make kids safer. When you look at police officers and their ability to hit moving targets, it's about 30% of the time. The idea that we're going to turn the average teacher into a sharpshooter is absurd. It's obscene. And educators don't want to be armed. If you look at the polling data, the vast majority of them want no part of having to take down active shooters. Police don't agree with arming teachers. And we have all these constituencies and state houses that we have to bring together to say that. And for a long time, lawmakers wouldn't listen. They thought anecdotally that this would save lives. And the other piece to remember is when you look at who is disproportionately disciplined in school, it's kids of color. Mm -hmm. And then you put guns into that mix mm -hmm. and you are endangering kids of color. So there's so many different reasons that teachers shouldn't be armed. And we act like, you know, these school shootings are acts of nature when in fact they're man-made acts of cowardice. God, that's a great way to put that. Man-made acts of cowardice. It's true. We should be disarming dangerous people instead of arming teachers. And to your point, the joke that a teacher would be able to hit a moving target. Which might be their student, by the way. Yes. I mean, it's it's absurd. And I, and I think, truly, I think about so much of the media that people see, you know, they're We've been watching action movies forever, and we watch cop shows, and, and we think, because it's made to look that way on camera and high, like pot, meat, kettle, pointing at myself, I played a cop on TV. Like, it, we make it look easy, but it's not easy. To your point, police hit their targets less than 30% of the time. Then those are people who are training right. constantly, who are in these active drills constantly. It's incredibly difficult. And for some reason, the the argument seems to be made that it'll just be like a Western movie and everything will be clean and work out. And that's not how it goes. No, the, usually what happens is a teacher will leave their loaded gun in a restroom or in the classroom unsecured. But what makes me so angry is that the majority of teachers in this country are women. And it's the lawmakers, the vast majority of whom are men, or school officials, also the vast majority of men who are men, making these decisions. While these teachers are saying, I will I don't, not. Right. I do not want to do that. Indiana is even trying to pass a law that allows teachers to be shot with rubber bullets so they feel the urgency of what a mass shooting situation would be like. To or traumatize an people. Right. That's so and, and that's what these active shooters drills do. They traumatize kids. I'm very curious about that. What role do you think that active shooter drills are playing in this whole scenario? And why do you think we're normalizing them? Well, again, I think it goes back to who who's making our laws and our policies, our school policies. These drills have not been shown to make a difference during active shootings, but they have shown been shown to cause depression and anxiety in children. And so our recommendation is that these drills are done with adults and they're done with teachers and not children. think that we have become desensitized to gun violence? I actually don't. I think 
that lawmakers don't want to talk about it after it happens. Lawmakers are at least who who oppose stronger gun laws. So they say, you know, this is too early to politicize. Don't politicize it. Mm. As though it's not already political. And then you have media who have run out of ways to tell these stories. Or maybe they're afraid. Maybe they don't have the courage to talk about what's really causing gun violence in this country. And so they have to speculate about all different kinds of reasons, and they won't focus on what the real problem is. But the fact that so many Americans get off the sidelines again and again after national shooting tragedies, the fact that we're the largest grassroots movement in the country, that we are winning in state houses and in boardrooms, and we're playing defense really well at a federal level. All of that shows me that this is a marathon, not a sprint. It's not going to happen overnight, but it is going to happen. It may take several election cycles, but I don't believe Americans are desensitized to 100 gun deaths every day, and I know parents are mad as hell. It's devastating to imagine that your kid could walk out the door and that could be the last time you see them. I I can't imagine what that must be like for you as a parent or for any other parent out there. It is unimaginable. And I think that Something that does give me hope is seeing the connectivity that you just mentioned on social media, seeing the way the movement grows for a grassroots movement to be doing what you guys are doing, to to be learning so quickly and to be so nimble and to be organizing the way you are. It's really incredible. And I know there's a lot of people on the other side. Well, not a lot, but the, the few people on the other side think there's no way they could be doing this organically. They must be, you know, getting some crazy funding or some person's running it. George Soros. I know. Yeah. Soros, Bloomberg. It's like, come on, the conspiracy theories. And I always think to myself, of course, they're this well-organized. They're moms. Exactly. Like my mom is a superhero. The amount of stuff she manages to do every day blows my mind. And one of my best friends had a baby a year ago and she's now a superhero. (laughs) She was, I thought she was a superhero before. And now I look at her and I'm like, I don't understand how you managed to do more with a baby on your hip than you were doing before you had a kid. There's this magical mom power that I'm so in awe of. And I'm very grateful that you guys are using it for this. And when we take the spreading of it via all these social channels together, obviously social media has played a huge role in getting you guys off the ground. But it also plays a huge role in implementing change. And I'm wondering if you can tell everybody listening what some of your most successful digital campaigns have been, you know, what you've been able to start online that becomes a bill passing or a law changing. So a lot of the corporate work has started for us online, whether it's the hashtag burritos, not bullets or skip Starbucks Saturdays. Um, we went after Target and a whole variety of restaurants and retailers that changed their policies simply because we were applying online pressure. We can do the same thing at the state level. So when we message our lawmakers and ask them to support bills, sometimes they'll tweet back and say, you know, this is something I'm definitely thinking about. And, and applying that pressure, showing how many people would support them, have their back if they do the right thing, but have their job if they don't, is a different way to be an activist in this country. And it really, we do see that it works. I would also say the defense that we've played at a federal level, social media played a huge role in that. When we were fighting the NRA's efforts to deregulate silencers or to pass something called concealed carry reciprocity, which would made the least stringent law for permitting in a state, the law of the land. If you got a permit, for example, in a state like 
Alabama, you could then take it to San Francisco or to New York City. What? Yes. Concealed carry reciprocity, the NRA has tried to pass it several times and they failed. But social media plays a role in all of it. And then we saw it again this weekend. We just had what we call Wear Orange Weekend. And it's a really important way to talk about this crisis, the gun violence crisis in this country, but also to acknowledge gun violence survivors, victims, and hundreds of thousands of tweets. We trended for seven hours. We showed pictures of what does it look like when communities wear orange, which is the colors hunters wear in the woods to say, don't shoot me. And it was a color we adopted after Hydea Pendleton was shot and killed in Chicago, And her friends rallied around. She was just 15 years old. And they started wearing the color orange, and it's something we've all adopted. And for everyone to band together on social media that weekend in June every year, including 19 presidential candidates who wore orange or talked about wear orange online, I don't know how— That must be so moving for her mom. I'm sure. I think about her. Yes, I do too. But imagine Mothers Against Drunk Driving in the 80s. How did they do this without social media? You know, it did take them 10 years to pass the laws they needed to pass. But I always think, you know, did they drive over to each other's homes? Did they send letters? Yeah, the door knocking and the phone calls and the meetups. Yeah. Social media just turbocharges all of it. That's incredible. What does life look like? Because we're we're talking about these huge wins and, and the movement and the legislation and the work. And I imagine so many people, because they look at you as as the tip of the spear of this organization, always want to talk about what to do and how to do it and, and what's the next law and what's the next hill that we march up and where do we go? What is life for you? Like, what's, <laughs> what is Shannon's life outside of Mom's Demand? What do you do to relax? How do you take care of your mental health in the midst of all of this? It's a really important question. And I talk a lot about self-care in my book because as Americans, we all deal with secondhand trauma, even if we haven't been impacted by gun violence, because we're constantly seeing it and talking about it and worrying about it and, and fighting against it. And it really is important to take a break and to prioritize the well-being of yourself and your family. I talk in my book about how I have a daughter who developed an eating disorder in college, right in the middle of all my mom's demand action work. And that took priority. There would be times I would be on my way to the airport and say, I can't make this visit. I've got to stay here and be here for my daughter. And that was my priority. And I talk a lot about how this is a marathon, not a sprint, because it is going to take a while. But at the same time, it's a relay race. And we have to be able to hand each other the baton when things get really tough. And to say, trust that other women will have your back and that you don't have to do everything. That's an Oprah moment. (laughs) It is. That's such a beautiful piece of wisdom that it's a relay race. It is. You cannot do this all yourself. And I think women have this quality about them where they either feel guilt about giving away the work they've taken on or they feel they're perfectionists and they feel like they can do it best. And that isn't going to help you in the long term with your ability to take care of yourself. If you don't invest in self-care, you aren't going to make it to the end of this marathon. And we need every American to be involved in this work. So we encourage self-care and talk a lot about it in our organization. So obviously being with your family feels like self-care to you. Yeah, I go hiking. I take a bath every night. I was going to ask. <laughs> I love bubble baths. I'm, I have been, and actually a guy friend of mine who is a really beautiful meditation teacher and a life coach was like, 
do you have goddess time? And I was like, literally, what LA woo woo? What, what are you talking about? You know, I was teasing him and he was like, first of all, you're from here. I was like, I understand, but I don't know what goddess time is. And he said to me, he goes, no, I'm serious. He said, as a woman, when you're out there working, you're, you're in the doing, but you also are expected to receive and then do with what you receive. And he said, I need for you to really think about your holistic experience with yourself. And do you take time for yourself? And he said, what I try to encourage all the women in my life to do is take a 20-minute bath because you guys don't shut off. And he said, you're not allowed to take your phone. If you really have like such terrible distraction issues that you can't be in there alone and just sit, take a book, but nothing electronic. And I was like, this feels... This feels like really hard homework. And I don't do it every day, but instituting baths into my life has actually made me so much gentler with myself. And I never knew. I am such a bath fanatic. Oh, I love that. It is so important to me every night to, at nine o'clock, take a break and get in the bathtub. And there's just something about it that is regenerative. You don't have to like go do a long vacation necessarily. Like even if you just have that half hour, it is alone time. And, you know, I have a vacation coming up in July and I can't wait. And I am going to try to disconnect and really focus on, you know, being with my husband. And it's just so important to remember that there are other things that are important in your life. And the reason you're doing this work, right, it is to protect my family. And and it's important to touch base with them and just remember that. How old are your kids now? It's so crazy because when I started this work, they were all the way from elementary school through college. Wow. And now my youngest just graduated from high school. Oh, and he's so tall. He's 6'8". It's so crazy. <laughs> I love seeing his photos because he's just like this beaming beanpole of a boy. And he looks and, like a baby. He's got a baby face, but like this huge body. But he's body. so tall. It's it's really, it's so incredible. It must be so cool to just watch them grow and do they also have kind of aspirations as their as activists themselves do they have different issues are they on board with this issue first of all they're also incredibly supportive of my work and they show up at every event they can which feels great but you know they're five kids they're all super different yeah but i do have a daughter who takes after me my daughter emma who is in college and is gay and is very active in her community and all of the different kinds of LGBTQ efforts and being a part of Pride right now and I think is is sort of emulating me and wants to be in the thick of things. I think she finds it really rewarding. Yeah. Well, the purpose that you find when you fight for others, I think, is so immense. It is. And I, I do think it's it's healing. And, and this is the same daughter I was talking about who had or is struggling with an eating disorder, which I think is a lifetime struggle. Mm-hmm. But when you are able to focus on other people, I do think it also takes you out of your own mindset of focusing mm-hmm. on yourself. Mm-hmm. And whether that's to serve as a distraction or just a way to channel your energy, I think, and, and her physician team has even said this, like that is where a lot of healing can take place when you are focused on other things, other people. Yeah, it can really put your struggle or your fears or your feelings into perspective so quickly. And I think in whatever space you find your community, to find a community of people who are also seeking answers and looking for their purpose, it just gives you a place outside of yourself. 
I think purpose is so important. You know, I was a communications executive for over a decade before I started Moms to Be in Action. And I was never fulfilled selling widgets or promoting projects and products. You know, it really was working with other people as a volunteer that has been the most fulfilling, albeit busiest job I've ever had. You write in your book, actually, when we talk about how to work with people, you talk about working with our so-called enemies. And obviously, our country is or feels, to your point about the way it feels online, it feels so divided. But people on both sides of the aisle agree on gun safety. So I wonder what you think are the first steps for any of us who want to have this conversation to step across the aisle to invite people into a conversation and and to push for that real bipartisan progress? The first thing I would say is we don't have to convince the vocal minority to support us. That is the benefit of having the vast majority of Americans and gun owners be on our side on this issue. We just need those people to use their voices and their votes. That's when we'll see real change on this issue. Now, the issue becomes, is part of that vocal minority your family? My parents, my dad and his wife are Trump voters. And they did not support the work that I do when I first started. But it really was a lot of conversation using facts and data to show what was really happening and to dispel some of the myths and misinformation from the gun lobby. And my dad last year showed up at a Wear Orange event wearing a Moms Demand Action t-shirt. So I think conversations are really, really important, especially when they're with your family and friends. But It has to be based on data and not anecdote. That is one of the things I find, whatever the issue might be, whether it's talking about racial injustice, inequality, the prison system, women's issues, gun rights, data is such an important starting point because everyone is emotional on whatever side they believe in. You know, my uncle voted for Donald Trump and I was like, what, what? And, you know, I didn't excommunicate him. I try to sit and have really thoughtful conversation with him. I've invited him in to explain his views, and then I've tried to share my views with him because we don't know what we don't know. And I realize that he doesn't know what the experience of being a woman is, what the experience of having your health care be threatened is, what the experience of a person of color is. And so we try to talk about those things. So whether you are a person who thinks the way we do or you're a person who thinks the way some of our family does, data doesn't have an emotional feeling. It doesn't skew right or left. It's just fact. One plus one always equals two. Reliable data is just honest math. And that feels like a really healthy place to start these conversations. It is. And if you go to everytown.org, we have so much data there that will help you have these conversations. Because if you don't know the data, you can't talk about it. So just to go there and and talk about some of the myths you and I have addressed and what's the data supporting the factual side of that position, but also understanding the real scope of gun violence and the fact that it is such a crisis. And is there, on every town for people listening who may not be part of your movement yet? Is there an action kit? Is there a starter kit for how to begin to do this work, how to begin to have these conversations, how to begin to approach your city council or your state legislature? Yes. So you can also go to momsdemandaction.org and we have a lot of information there. But the best thing to do is to text JOIN to 64433. 64433, the word JOIN. Yep. 
And we will get in touch with you immediately and get you involved. And you can meet other people in your community who are like-minded, who are already working on this, and decide what part of it are you passionate about and how much time do you have. And and trust me, we will be very efficient and effective in using it. That's amazing. Thank you so much for creating so many avenues for people to take action. Thank you for supporting it. I have one last question for you. So the title of this podcast is Work in Progress because – I think so often in this digital age, everyone's looking at everyone else's life through a screen and thinking, well, everybody else has it together and I'm the only person who doesn't know what I'm doing. And what I realize is that everybody's working on something. Everybody's trying to evolve to be a better version of themselves. Everybody feels a little lost in some arena. So in your life right now, for all the great things and the movement and your family and graduations and your upcoming vacation. Thank God you're finally <laughs> going to take one. What feels like your work in progress? For me, it is marrying the intersectionality that is so front and center right now in our country, the need for understanding all of the different ways issues tie together and applying it to gun violence prevention. Working on diversity, equality, and inclusion is a priority for us. We actually just hired a woman from Planned Parenthood named Angela Farrell Zabala. And she is really going to help us grow our grassroots and make sure that we are creating the right partnerships and getting involved with community groups so that we can amplify our efforts. And making sure that we are focused on the DEI work that never ends. You know, when I started Moms to Men Action, a lot of the people who came into it looked like me, white suburban moms who were worried their kids weren't safe in schools. But gun violence impacts everyone, particularly families in city centers or in marginalized communities. And those people have been on the front line of this issue for so long, but they've been invisible. And we want to make sure that we're talking about that. We're talking about rural gun suicides, ultimately coming back to the fact that this movement needs to represent everyone and every issue that is intersectional with gun violence. Well, thank Thank you you so so much much. for this. Thank you for coming. Thank you. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. Fast. 